through the book of Chronicles. Lord willing, time willing, we're doing 15 and 16 tonight. Now, back a couple chapters ago in 1 Chronicles 13, David had the right heart, but he had the wrong follow-through. He wanted to see the ark moved back into Jerusalem. And so he went about it in 1 Chronicles 13, and they sure went about it passionately. They went about it excitedly, but they went about it unbiblically. And it caused a lot of issues. So what you see happening is them stopping and saying, we're not going to do this. Last week, we had a real brief interlude, if you will, of chapter 14 about David and him being established as king and just his kingdom growing. But now we pick up the story back again in chapter 15. David's going to try again now to move the ark to Jerusalem. It did not go well the first time. So what makes this chapter different? Well, let's pick this chapter up in the middle. The key verse tonight is found in 1 Chronicles 15, verse 13. For because you did not do it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not consult him about the proper order. David says, hey guys, the reason this went bad in chapter 13 is because we didn't do it God's way. We did it our way. Once again, they were excited. They were passionate, but they were unbiblical about it. See, if you remember back in 1 Chronicles 13, David goes around and asks everybody, what do you think? Should we move the ark to Jerusalem? And it says in 1 Chronicles 13, everybody thinks this is a great idea. Well, then, hey, let's just do it. No one asked the Lord what he thought. David now in 1 Chronicles 15 stops and realizes what we did was wrong because we did not seek the Lord first. There's a great point in that. You can be passionate. You can be excited. But if you're doing it unbiblically, it's never going to be blessed by God. So David seeks wisdom here on how to do it. Remember what we said when we started our study in Chronicles a while ago. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, these people were given to us as examples. Examples of what to do, also examples of what not to do. So we can learn from David these amazing points of what it means to be a man seeking after the Lord. But we also can learn from the examples of failure. So we saw his examples of failure in chapter 13. Well, in chapter 15, we see what we're supposed to do. Guess what? Verse 13, just do it God's way. Isn't that so simple? Just do it God's way. I don't know how many times in the last couple weeks I've been talking to people and they're coming up with these really rough, tough life situations and we simply just ask them, what does the Lord say to do in that? Okay, then let's just do it. Let's just do it. And sometimes what people say back is, well, you don't understand, it's complicated. Well, what's uncomplicated and do it God's way. And it's really that simple. See, the problem is we keep repeating the same patterns and habits again. And so when we keep repeating the same patterns and habits again, we keep getting the same result. What did Peter write? What's well, actually quoting out of Proverbs, 2 Peter 2.22, just as the dog returns to the vomit. And you know what I'm talking about with that, right? I don't need to give any examples, right? I got a picture real quick, just kidding. But you know what I'm talking about. It's disgusting. It's gross. But you see people in life do that. They make a really dumb choice. They realize it's spiritual vomit. And then they, I'm not ever going to do this again. And then a few weeks later, you're doing the exact same thing again. They're fighting over the same fights. They're having the same problems. They're going down the same paths. And they wonder why life keeps repeating itself. And they're in the vomit again and again and again. Because they never learn. Oh, yeah, they get hurt. Oh, yeah, they carry the spiritual bruises, but they never learn, and they return to the vomit again. One thing about First Chronicles 15, verse 13, David says, I learned. 
And that's what I love about this chapter. He was willing to listen to the Lord and say, I messed up the first time. Let's do it right this time. So now rewind back to verse 1 of 1 Chronicles 15. David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God, and he pitched a tent for it. Then David said, No one may carry the ark of God but the Levites, for the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of God and to minister before him forever. And David gathered all Israel together at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place, that which he had prepared for it. Then David assembled the children of Aaron and the Levites. This word Levites is used 11 times in chapter 15 because David realized they're the ones that's supposed to be doing it. I mean, this is all laid out biblically. Numbers chapter 4 explains clearly who's allowed to carry what, how they're supposed to carry it, even to the point of what color is supposed to be the covering for these utensils. Because when they carried the utensils, they actually put coverings over them so no one would touch them. Certain ones had blue coverings, certain ones had scarlet coverings. And Numbers 4 explains it. This family carries these utensils. This family carries this. This group is supposed to do this. It's all laid out perfectly. The problem was in 1 Chronicles 13, David didn't do it. So now he says, we're going to do this the right way. We're going to do this biblically. I'm just telling you right now, whatever problem you're facing in life, if you just do it the right way and you do it biblically, it's just going to go better. I'm not saying it's going to be perfect and I'm not going to say all your problems are going to disappear, but it's going to go better because the Lord is good and the Lord does good and the Lord has a plan. And we follow that plan, it works. So what you see here in verses 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9, and 10, and 11, you see him listing the people that were going to be doing this. Now, you've got to remember when Chronicles was written, Chronicles is written in this idea of the exiles coming back from the Babylonian captivity. So that's why you see the importance of these names being mentioned here, because they're resetting up this Levitical priesthood, and it's important to know who does what. But the key thing here now is in verse 12. He said to them, You are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves, you and your brethren, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place I have prepared for it. That term, sanctify yourself, depending on your translation, consecrate yourself, purify yourself. That word sanctified is such an important word. It's where we get the word for saint. It's where we get the word for holy. See, now the problem is when we see that word saint and holy, we imagine these perfect, Christians, these super saints that don't do anything wrong. That's not what that word's saying. Sanctified means you have set it apart. It's something very special. Maybe you have a shelf in your house that's higher up, and you have sanctified that self. It's set apart. That's where you put the special things that no one can touch, no one can break. Dawn has this um, Precious Moments nativity set that we got years ago before we had kids. And it's really cute. It has not made an appearance for a decade in our house. Finally this year, she got it out. Tyrus was going to turn four. She thought, we can finally bring it out. Finally bring it out. But we put it on top of the piano. We sanctified it. We set it apart. So God is saying, sanctify yourself. Set yourselves apart. So how do they do that in the Old Testament? Well, Exodus, you wash your clothes a certain way. There are certain abstinence rules. Leviticus 22, you have to make sure you wash the body a certain way. You make sure you're not touching anything unclean. There was this whole list of what to wear, how to wear it, how to wash, how to get ready. And they would sanctify themselves that way. Now, we don't have to do that nowadays. But we're still called to be sanctified as well. 
Have you ever thought about that? God has called you to be set apart from this world. You've heard me made this point many times out here before. The problem with Christians is we still dress like the world, act like the world, talk like the world, live like the world. How are we set apart? We're called to a different moral standard. So therefore, everything we do is supposed to be different. So how are we sanctified today? Okay, let's just go through this real quick. This is how you're sanctified. If you're a note taker, write it down. Three quick points. Hebrews 13.12. Hebrews 13.12. Jesus has sanctified you by his blood. That's the most important one. You are set apart by the blood of Christ. So he has purchased you. He has bought you. He has paid your heavenly debt that you can't pay. And you are set apart for the Lord. So that's point number one. Set apart by the blood of Jesus. If you don't get point one, nothing else matters. Because you can't set yourself apart. You can't sanctify yourself. There's nothing you can do other than going through the blood of Jesus Christ that is going to give you entrance into heaven and to set you apart for God's purposes. Nothing. So the first one, Hebrews 13, 12, is Jesus' blood has set us apart. Sanctified us. Next one, 1 Peter 3, 15. 1 Peter 3, 15. We are called to sanctify the Lord God in our heart. What that means is in our heart, we stop and we say, Lord, I want to serve you. It's a choice I make. See, there's a lot of people that claim Jesus verbally. They claim Jesus in their actions. But have they in their heart set that aside and said, Lord, I am yours. There's a lot of Christians in name only. A lot. How many of us are really stopping and saying, Lord, I want to live a crazy, spirit-filled life for you and all that I say and do? I have set apart my heart. I have sanctified my life completely to you and all that I say and do. First step, Jesus' blood. Second step, a choice you make. Now, how do we do this on a daily thing? You know, my big thing is, how do we practically do this? Jesus gave us the answer in John 17, 17. He said in John 17, 17, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So God's word is a daily cleansing, sanctifying aspect of your life. So put all these three together. First step is Jesus' blood sets you apart for something special. You have been sanctified. Okay, that's step one, salvation. Step two, in your heart, you choose to be set apart from the world. You choose to say, I am called to a different moral standard in how I live and how I act. Step three, on a daily basis, I'm in the word cleansing, sanctifying. As you guys know, we have boys, a lot of boys in our house. And it's not uncommon to say to the boys, Hey, you need to go get cleaned up. you got to go take a bath. you got to go take a shower. And then hearing a comment like this, I did that last week. God bless you for doing that last week. There needs to be a little bit more daily ritual here, guys. I think that happens a lot as a Christian. I'll be talking to someone about the Lord and say, You know, have you ever been saved? Oh, I've been saved, yeah. When did you get serious with the Lord? Oh, when I was six years old, 50 years ago, I made a commitment to the Lord. Amen. So what's been going on these last five decades? Well, six when I was six years old, I made a commitment to the Lord. See, what about this cleansing, this daily in the Word, this, this daily getting up and saying, Lord, I'm yours. See, I think we would all agree here tonight on the blood of Jesus sanctifies us and sets us apart. Amen. 
I think we'd probably all agree here tonight that our heart has to want it. It has to choose it. Amen. Now, this daily thing, that's asking a lot. See, we almost look back at the Old Testament and think it's easier. What do I have to do to be holy in the Lord? Take a bath a certain way? I can do that. Wear certain clothes? I can do that. Don't touch dead animals or dead people? I can do that. Stay away from ceremonial unclean? I can do that. Well, then amen, you're now sanctified. Great. But you have no personal relationship with the Lord in any way whatsoever. See, what we have today is so much better. We have a personal relationship with the Lord. The Holy Spirit has chosen to take up abode in your heart. Now, what are you going to do with that information? God's Word tells me on a regular basis what to do. I was just reading Greg Laurie's commentary, and excuse me, Greg Laurie's devotional. And he just made a comment about always being open and ready to share Christ with somebody. And he says, you could be going just to get gas at the gas station, and the Lord opens the door to share Christ. I read that a couple of days ago. Amen. Had to go get fuel this week. It's cold this week. Pulled up aside in the car. I have my uh, very manly uh, 2009 Kia Spectra. Makes a lot of people turn their heads. And so I pulled up beside somebody who's uh, driving a Ford Excursion. If you're not familiar with the Ford Excursion, it's the biggest SUV they make. I know because we have the Ford Expedition, which is one step below that. So he, he comes to me and he goes, this guy, trade ya. This guy's weird, man. I'm just telling you right now. You know how you can tell right from the beginning something's not clicking upstairs? This is not clicking. I said, oh, trade, huh? He goes, yeah, you fill mine up, I fill yours up. I said, deal. I said, but then we switch vehicles. I don't want to switch vehicles. I said, that's fine. Just let me fill my car up. It's cold. I got these new earmuffs for Christmas. I love earmuffs. This best pair of earmuffs I've ever had. They are so nice that when you have them on, your ears are so warm. The catch is you can't hear. He keeps talking to me. That means I have to take off my earmuffs. I'm not really happy about this now. He's still talking about how big his gas tank is. And it's like, then... Greg Glory, you may get a chance to share Christ with somebody while filling up the fuel tank. Now, Greg Glory lives in Southern California, okay? So if it's 80 degrees, I'll share Christ with anybody anytime. When it's a wind chill of negative 14, I don't really care at this moment. But at that moment, it came to remembrance. At that moment, I had to make a choice. In my heart, do I really care about the soul of this man? In this moment, am I going to? My car is done filling up. I put 10 gallons in. He's putting 50. Okay? My car is done. Stayed. Talked. You know, got a chance to talk to him about how the Lord blessed us with kids. And and he was talking about his family. And then he started talking about, what's going on with the world today? And I said, I don't know. I said, I know this. If the world would just honor the Lord. And all of a sudden, you have this great little conversation at negative 14 degree road chill about what would happen if we as a people would just honor the Lord. And I just started thinking, okay, God, this is what it is. This is sanctifying my heart. This is me being set apart. (sighs) Okay, Lord, this is what it is. But we have to choose that. We have to desire that. And so when I read here in 1 Chronicles 15 of sanctify yourselves, go take a special bath. Go put on special clothes. Don't touch anything dead. That sure sounds a whole lot easier than what we're called to do. But the difference is the spiritual responsibilities we have and the difference is the blessings we have and getting to impact somebody for eternity. That's an amazing thing. When you get a chance to pray with somebody and they, and they understand the concept of being born again, 
Man, you just, you just saw eternity right there. That's a pretty cool thing. So, David's got this set up. He's got the Levites doing it. He's doing it the right way. He's following God's word. He's learned from his mistakes. Amen. Anybody any quick questions, comments about anything here? Marcus. That's a very good question. If you're asking me personally, stress, personal opinion, if I remember correctly, when we talked through this a couple weeks ago, I think we said it's been 70 years since they had the ark. I think it was excitement. I think it was a little bit of blind ambition. I, I don't know necessarily if it was if it was pride. I don't see the um, I don't see that hinted at. I guess you could make a case it was pride that they never consulted God. What I see in First Chronicles 13. I see my kids that are just so excited, they just do it without thinking. And I think what happened in First Chronicles 13 is, hey, we haven't had the ark for 70 years. We just got Jerusalem. It's a great capital. We got a great king now. We're at a really high point as a nation of Israel that we've never been. Great idea. Let's go get the ark. I, I think it was. If I had to pick your three options there, Marcus, I think it was a little bit of just blind ambition. We're just going to do this, and we're not going to think about it. And God says, sorry, you got to think things through. You can be excited. You can be passionate, but be biblical. And that's the problem. They were excited. They were passionate, but they weren't biblical. Anybody else have anything here before we go on? Okay, so let's see what happens. Verse 14, the priests and Levites sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. And the children of the Levites bore the ark of God on their shoulders by its poles. Remember, last time they brought it in a cart. This time they're doing it right. As Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. Don't skip over that verse. Just do things God's way. Verse 16, Then David spoke to the leaders of the Levites to appoint their brethren to be singers accompanied by instruments of music, stringed instruments, harps, and cymbals by raising the voice with resounding joy. So the Levites appointed these different people here. You see in verse 17, 18, and 19, and 20, and 21, and 22, 23, and 24. Verse 25, So David, the elders of Israel, and the captains over thousands, went to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Obadiah-Edom with joy. And so it was when God helped the Levites who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord that they offered seven bulls and seven rams. Now, that's a fascinating verse there in verse 26. God helped the Levites. Helped. Now, some of your translations don't say helped, but that's a really interesting word there. Why did they need help? It wasn't that it was heavy. Well, the last three times they messed with the ark... I think if you add it up, nearly 60,000 people died. Uzzah touched the ark and died. The people opened the ark and died. And then a plague went through and 50,000 plus died. We have no idea how many were affected in the Philistines. If you were the Levite that got the option to carry the ark, wouldn't you politely decline? God helped them. Now, why does he help them? Once again, it's not because it's heavy. Maybe were they were nervous, were they scared, were they whatever? I don't know why, but I just know this in verse 26, when it comes to ministry, I sure hope God helps us. How dangerous is it a place to be that when you reach a point as a Christian, as a ministry, as a church, where you say, Lord, we got this, don't worry. Boy, you always want the Lord's help. You always want the Lord's help. And it says there in verse 26 that they offered seven bulls and seven rams. According to Second uh, Samuel chapter 6, they offered this Every six steps. Think about that. 
Six steps, stop, make a sacrifice. Six steps, stop, make a sacrifice. There's no way to even guess how long it would take to, to do this. Now, I, I was reading a commentary, and this guy made a great point, so give credit where credit to do. It was John Corson. He says, that's not an efficient way to transport the ark, but it's an effective way. And he says, so much that happens in ministry, so much of what we do as a Christian, it's not efficient in any way whatsoever, but it's effective. And boy, that's the truth of ministry. A lot of times when you're talking to somebody, it's not really efficient. One person's talking to one person, and you just keep talking and talking and talking and talking, and, and you see all these other people. There's a lot of times on Sunday I'll be talking to someone, and as I'm talking to them, the Lord's really opening a door, but I'm like, oh, I wanted to say hi to them, and they're walking out the door. Oh, I wanted to say hi to them, and they're walking out the door. But it's efficient. Excuse me, it's not efficient, but it's effective, because God says, yeah, James, I just want you to talk to this one person right here, right now. Think of how many times in the Gospels Jesus had a one-on-one conversation with somebody. I was just reading in John 4 the other day about Jesus talking to the woman at the well. This is the Messiah. He should be talking to 10,000, 20,000 people at a time. But he stops and spends an afternoon talking to a woman at a well. Not very efficient, but very effective. And there's a lot of times in your ministry and your personal walk with the Lord, God is going to ask you to do something that is not efficient in any way whatsoever. Lord, you want me to spend how long with this person doing this? Not efficient, but it's effective. And that's what you see the example being set here. And how cool is that? God says, I'll help you guys. And you know what? No one died. We did it the right way. We did it God's way. And no one died. Verse 27, David was clothed with a robe of fine linen, as were all the Levites who bore the ark, the singers, and the Chanel, the music master with the singers. David also wore a linen ephod. Real quick, I think it says in Samuel, it's been kind of translated or understood that David was dancing in his underwear. Um, That's not what was going on. What it means, literally, is he took off his kingly clothes, and he wore the clothes of a common man. And so, therefore, he looked disgraced, if you will, because... He's the king. And the whole point is David says, no, I'm just a servant of the Lord. Verse 28, Thus all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with the shouting, with the sound of the horn and trumpets, and with cymbals making music with stringed instruments and harps. And it happened as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came to the city of David that Michal, Saul's daughter, David's wife, looked through a window and saw King David whirling and playing music, and she despised him in her heart. Now, we've got to get a little bit more background on this. Please go to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Same story, but in 2 Samuel chapter 6, the emphasis is on David, where in 1 Chronicles 15, the emphasis seems to be more on the Levites. So what did McCall say? Well, verse 20 of 2 Samuel chapter 6, David returned to bless his household, and McCall, the daughter of Saul, came up to meet David, remember they're married, and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants, as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. If you can't figure out in verse 20, that's sarcasm. Um, That obviously is a gift of the Spirit that women get. I don't understand it. I have not seen that in the Bible. Uh, My wife has it. Verse 21, David said to McCall, It was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house. Ooh, that hits hard. (laughs) Remember, God chose me. Your dad died. He chose me. To appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord. 
And I will be even more undignified than this and will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants in whom you have spoken, by them I will be held in honor. David says, I don't care what you think. I'm going to praise the Lord. I'm going to wear the clothes of a common man. I'm not going to be the king that's just sitting there on the throne. I'm going to worship my Lord. Verse 23, therefore, Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Verse 23, very simply put, she was barren, she was fruitless. Real quick spiritual point, if you live your life in a life of criticism towards others, you will be barren and fruitless. You just won't have joy. And you've met Christians that I think love the Lord, but they're critical of everything. Why well, I think we should do it this way. I don't think they should do that. They have an opinion on everything, and they're not afraid to share that opinion on everything. And you look at them, you're thinking, I don't really want to be around you. There's not a lot of joy. There's not a lot of spirit here. You're barren. You're fruitless because you spend your whole life criticizing the way people do things and how they act and what have you. And so McCall is really a picture of somebody that just wants to bring the Jesus party down. And the truth is, every church has a couple of McCalls. They do. And it just happens. And if you're around some of those at home, at work, what have you, you have to stop and you have to say, you know what, I can't let this one person dictate my joy. I can't. If this is what the Lord's calling me to do, then I'm going to dance. I'm going to praise. But what you see here with McCall is you see this fruitlessness and you see this barrenness because she lives her life in the critical spirit rather than just saying, let's celebrate that the ark is brought back. And it's sad. We still have that today. Jump back to First Chronicles now. What you see happening in chapter 16 is the party continues. And what you have here in chapter 16, basically from about verse 7 to nearly the end of the chapter, you have this great song that they sing. We're not going to get into that. I'm just going to throw these references out to you. Psalm 105 and Psalm 96. Psalm 105 and Psalm 96. The first part of that song is Psalm 105. The second half is Psalm 96. I encourage you in your time of devotions this week, in your quiet time with the Lord, go read Psalm 105 and 96. You'll see that these are the ones that were sung here while this was happening. But now, the ark is brought back. You start seeing this this spiritual turn. Verse 1, They brought the ark of God and set it in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. Then they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offering, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. Real quick, because we've got a lot yet to cover. Burnt offerings in the Old Testament are voluntary. Not required. Completely voluntary. It shows a dedication to the Lord. Because with a burnt offering, everything is burnt up. That's how you remember it. Everything is burnt up, and it's supposed to show a complete, utter dedication to God that I have, I guess for lack of a better word, burnt up my whole life for the Lord. I I give it all to you. Peace offerings always represent fellowship. So what you have going on here in verses 1 and 2, these offerings show that we are completely dedicating ourselves to the fellowship with God. It's pretty cool. And God has asked us to do the same thing today. Have the peace offerings of fellowship with Him and hopefully with others and a burnt offering of completely voluntarily dedicating ourselves to the Lord. These offerings weren't required. These were because they wanted to. Fellowship and complete dedication to the Lord. Verse 3, Then He distributed to every uh, woman, excuse me, everyone of Israel, both man and woman, to everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. And He appointed some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord to commemorate And to thank and to praise the Lord God of Israel. Real quick, verse 4, to commemorate. 
Some of your translations say to record. What these songs are supposed to be is a time of memory of what God has done. And and I just want to encourage you to do that. I don't know if I've shared this with you before. When I first got saved, uh, there was a gal that I was involved with at a Bible study um, over at the college. And and she was really into journaling. And I just, I didn't see that. I never saw the importance of it. And it's been in the last few years that I've really started to see the blessing of that. Because the Lord gives you a verse or a thought, and you're like, oh, man, this is so powerful. I'm never going to forget it. And an hour later, it's like, what did God say? Then I find myself writing things down now, marking things, underlining things more than ever, and going back and saying, wow, I remember that. And one of the things that we do as a family, and, I, and if you don't do this with your kids or family, I would just encourage you to do it. It comes out of the book of Joshua. When they crossed the Jordan River, they crossed it, and they said, as you're crossing the Jordan River, pick up a few stones from the bottom of the river. And when you get across the other side, set up some altars with those stones. So that way, when your kids come and ask you, hey, what's the pile of stones for? You can then have them as memorial stones to remember what the Lord did as he helped you cross the Jordan. So what we do is we have a notebook at home, and we've been working on this now for a couple years. We, We try to do it once a month. I'm not saying we get it every month, but we try to. And we just stop and say, what did God do for you this month that you want to remember? That's a memorial stone. And it's so much fun to go back two years ago now when we first started this and seeing what the kids wanted to write down. And you go back, it's like, wow, I forgot about that. Look what the Lord did. And I just want to encourage you, grab a notebook, start a memorial stone book. Maybe it's just for you personally. Maybe it's for you and your kids, you and your spouse, you and your friends. I don't know. And just once a month, sit down and say, what did the Lord do this month that we want to write down and remember? Because what you see here in verse 4, that's why they sang these songs. We want to commemorate. We want to record. We want to remember what God has done. Because the whole point is we want to tell everybody about it. Just look at the first few verses of this. Verses 8 through 13 of this song. Look at what they're supposed to do. Verse 8, give thanks. Boy, what would happen if we would just start out our day? Lord, I want to thank you. I woke up. I'm breathing. I mean, just give thanks. Next one, call upon his name. Lord, I call upon you today. All day, I'm just going to be at, I'm yours. What do you want from me? Make known his deeds among the people. Lord, today, I want to make known what you have done. People I run into, I want to represent Jesus Christ to them. I want to make known what God is doing in my life. Verse 9, sing to him, sing psalms to him. Lord, I'm going to praise you today. I'm going to praise you. As I'm going to work, as I'm going to the doctor, as I'm going wherever, I'm going to sing to you, and I'm going to praise you in all that I do and all that I say. Verse 9, I'm going to talk of your wondrous works. Maybe when I run into other believers, let me tell you what God did for me today. Maybe even non-believers, let me tell you what the Lord did. I'm going to talk about you. Verse 10, I'm going to glory in your holy name. That's hard. See, when you glory in his holy name, you're not glorying in anything about you. It's his name. And his name always, always, always deserves glory. So, glorying in his holy name means that you completely, utterly forget about anything that's going on in your life. And you say, I just want to glory in the name of God. That's why it's called a sacrifice of praise. See, so often, we have praise and worship so completely backwards. We come into praise and worship, and we become music critics. Because we want the songs done a certain way. We want the volume level to be a certain way. We want the style to be a certain way. That's not the way they do it on the radio. They play it too fast. They play it too slow. They do this. They do that. Oh, I don't really like that song. And we completely misunderstand what praise and worship is. It's just praising God for being God. 
Or we come into praise and worship and it's like, well, you know what? I didn't have a good week this week, so God, you have not earned any praise. You praise him for just being God. So glory in his holy name? You have an awful week. I mean, the worst week you could ever imagine. God's name is still good. You glory in it. Let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Guess what? Verse 10, seek the Lord. Verse 11, seek the Lord. Verse 11, seek his face. See, that's a conscious effort that you choose to seek the Lord. You, you, you choose, just like we talked about what the word sanctify means, where I sanctify him in my heart. I choose to do this. You know, we've been talking about this 40 days of prayer and fast out here, and that verse is Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. It's a choice we make to say, Lord, this is your year, not my year. I will seek you and all that I say and all that I do. And then lastly, verse 12, remember. Remember his marvelous works which he has done. Write them down, mark them down, underline them, do it. Just imagine how much different your life would be if you would just do verses 8 through 13. Give thanks, call upon, make known, sing, talk about him, glory in him, seek him, and remember him. It would completely change your life. And when you do that, all of a sudden you start getting a Christ-centered focus. And when you have a Christ-centered focus, you know what? A lot of things that happen in this world kind of really do, as the song says, grow strangely dim. And that's the whole purpose of it. What I love about chapters 15 and 16 is these chapters are so powerful because we already read chapter 13. You saw them do it wrong. Passionately and excitedly, but unbiblically. So what you see now in chapters 15 and 16 Now I see the passion, now I see the excitement, and now I see the biblical part. You get those three together, and that's a crazy combination for the Lord. Passionate, excited, but biblical, man, you can change the world. And you see David here saying, we're going to do it right this time, guys. I messed up the last time, we're doing it biblical, we're doing it right. We're going to sanctify ourselves. We today, we sanctify ourselves by the blood of Jesus by his word, and by choosing that in our hearts. We then also say too, Lord, I need your help. Just as God helped them carry the ark, I can't do this on my own, Lord. I can't. Your yoke is easy, your burden is light. I'm done carrying this on my own. I'm going to do this with you. And a lot of what we do may not be efficient, but it's effective. The flip side is McCall. Critical spirit. No fruit and barren. We've got to be careful about that. I voluntarily dedicate my life to burnt offerings. I want to have fellowship with you, the peace offerings. And I want to remember what you've done. I commemorate that. And then my day-to-day life, ah, oh man, give thanks, call upon, make known, sing, talk, glory, and seek him. It's going to change everything. It really is. Anybody have any final questions, comments here? Ryan. Mm-hmm. That's what I would assume. They had at the temple, they had guards, um, and this is recorded in secular or you know, non-biblical history, I should say, as long as also in the Bible, that in certain courts, like you had the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, if people went into certain courts that weren't supposed to, you had temple guards that were armed 
that were going to take those people out to keep them from getting into the temple. And just like you would not be able to walk into the Holy of Holies back there, you had guards that were guarding it. So yes, what I'm assuming here with this tent is that you probably had armed guards on each side of the front of the tent guarding the tent to keep people from going into the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, run. Well, the best example I can give you of an example of burnt offering is to go back to Leviticus chapter 1. And what you see, the whole chapter of chapter 1 is what the burnt offering is. And what basically the best way to sum up the burnt offering is that you take the entire animal, cut it into pieces, and you burn it. And so that's what it is. And if you weren't with us, I encourage you, and if you want to put Dustin on the spot tonight, you can. We did all the offerings many, many moons ago, and I don't remember what it was. But it was a wonderful study because you see how all these burnt offerings, peace offerings, are a picture of Jesus Christ. But I I would just encourage you to just go back, read Leviticus chapter 1, and you'll see what the burnt offering is. Basically, it's the entire animal burnt over to the Lord, everything taken care of to show a complete, total dedication to God. Anybody else have anything? Yeah, Jody. No, we would not know, but I would assume that we're talking in the tens of thousands and not hundreds of thousands. Because we know from back in um, Second Samuel, when they brought the ark and they looked at it, didn't it say about, um, no, Second Samuel chapter 6, where they brought the ark to Jerusalem, it says, again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. And that was the choice men of Israel in 30,000. So that's not including the women, the children, and the unchoice men. Um, so we do not have a guesstimate for sure. But there was one commentator I read about that said in verse 3, that's a pretty big deal. And, it, and some of your translations do not say meat. Is that correct in verse 3? That's a difficult word in the Hebrew to translate. And the one guy said if it truly was a piece of meat, that would be a delicacy of delicacies because the Hebrews weren't really known to have a lot of meat to eat. So, it's a big deal, which, verse 3, it was a big deal. They brought the ark back, but we don't know for sure. But we're talking tens of thousands of people, if not hundreds of thousands of people. Anybody else have anything here we're going to close up? All right, let's pray. Lord, the thing that's just on my heart right now is just that burnt offering, the total dedication to you. Um, I think of what Isaiah said, here I am, Lord, use me. Help us to be used by you in all that we say and all that we do. Please, Lord, help us to realize it's not about us. It's about Jesus. Help us to realize it's not about little fights, little arguments. It's about you. Lord, please put eternity into our heart to really know you, to seek you, and to understand you. And, Lord, we want to be passionate about you. We want to be excited about you. But we want to be biblical about you. Thank you, Lord. And I just want to pray if there's someone here tonight that kind of has that... uh, McCall's spirit or attitude of that criticalness, just speak to them. Speak to them the joy of grace. Thank you, Lord, for your love, your grace, and your mercy in your name. Amen. Hey, don't forget, if you're interested in that evangelism, talk to uh, Betsy. She's got some material she can get in your hand. If anybody's got anything to pray about, feel free to pop on up here. We'll be up here for a little bit. We'll pray with you. You guys have a good week, and God bless.